Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People have used psychedelic substances for thousands of years, as part of traditional medicine, for example, or as a way to heighten spiritual or religious connections. In the late 1930s, the chemist Albert Hoffman was scouring laboratories for a drug that might improve blood circulation. Instead, he found what turned out to be LSD, more commonly known today as acid. It wasn't long before acid and other hallucinogenic drugs made their way into recreational use. I took acid and it, uh, it just blew my mind. I mean, it stimulates nice parts of your consciousness. But I can guarantee it, man, if you take a psychedelic, something will happen every time. Heaven or hell. I'm trying to be as still as possible so that I can feel my body and feel nature. In the early 1960s, on the east coast of America, the psychologist Timothy Leary founded the Harvard Psilocybin Project. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. I took... Mexican mushrooms, the so-called magic mushrooms of Mexico. And uh, I learned more about my brain and its possibilities, and I learned more about psychology in the five hours after taking these mushrooms than I had in the preceding 15 years. He became an important figure in the counterculture movement of that period. And he also had a knack for coming up with turns of phrase that captured the essence of those experimental, psychedelic times. Turn on... Tune in and drop out. Around the same time, scientists were also dreaming up experiments to test the medical potential of psychedelic drugs. American clinicians tried LSD as an aid in psychotherapy. But this wave of science didn't last long. A political backlash against the recreational use of psychoactive substances was brewing. Research into the effects of psychedelics on the brain became collateral damage. This trend toward drugs has alarmed every responsible segment of the community, for they know that there are inherent risks in the drug experience. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. But now, almost half a century after President Nixon kicked off the war on drugs, research into mind-altering substances seems to be resurging. Can psychedelic drugs 
finally make it into mainstream medicine. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today we're talking about the renaissance of psychedelics. We explored the use of ketamine as a potential antidepressant on the show back in June. This week, we'll look at the more classical psychedelic drugs, such as psilocybin, and we'll investigate what impact they could have in modern healthcare, from treating mental health conditions to improving our basic understanding of how the brain works. Plus, can removing the high from psychedelics make them into better medicines? We'll speak to a researcher who hopes to take the fun out of fungi. Guiding me through today's show is The Economist's health policy editor, Natasha Loder. Natasha, really exciting to have you back on the show again. Thanks, Halak. It's great to be here. Natasha, you've just written a series of essays for The Economist about how to fix the brain. It's our latest technology quarterly, or TQ. Um, I want to focus on one particular aspect of that reporting, which is the way in which psychedelic drugs can be used in healthcare to treat various conditions. And first of all, though, can you just define for us what a psychedelic is and what kinds of substances we're actually talking about? So the kind of drugs we're talking about are those that are, you know, giving a sort of altered state of consciousness, particularly ones that create hallucinations, sort of visually trippy effects, but also can be auditory hallucinations. And there's a sort of alphabet soup of drugs that we're talking about, some of which you will have heard of, like LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin or mushrooms, and probably things you haven't heard of, like five meow DMT, which comes from a toad, and ibogaine. And then there's um, ayahuasca, which is this revolting tea that makes people throw up, but people rave about. So five meow DMT, is that something that comes from a toad after you've taken it because you think it's a toad that's given it to you or does it actually come from a toad? It actually comes from a toad, although you can synthesize it as well, but, but you know you have to obtain it from this toad. Okay, look, so in all seriousness, uh, all the drugs you mention are exactly the kinds of drugs that are basically illegal in many places around the world. How on earth have they got to the point where an organisation like ours is writing about them as potential treatments for mental health conditions? I would trace the change back to the sort of use of ketamine in depressed patients and to a certain extent, the sort of softening of attitudes towards medical cannabis. There's a bit of evidence that it works in things like chronic pain and a few other conditions. And there's been a certainly softening of, you know, legal approaches in some countries. And that has all meant the mood music has started to shift over psychedelics um, in this area. And what we've seen in the last five years is venture capital firms are really piling into this area of research and investing in proper trials. Ketamine, of course, is something we've done an entire show about, um, the potential for ketamine treatment in depression. What other conditions uh, are we looking at in terms of the uses for other psychedelic drugs of the type you've been talking about? Well, in terms of mental health illnesses, I mean, it's hard to think of a, a condition that isn't being explored. I mean, there's anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, addiction, anorexia, and many others. Some of these trials are really at a very early stage. The later stage trials that are being looked at are MDMA for PTSD, 
post-traumatic stress disorder and psilocybin uh, for depression. There's also some people who are interested in looking at psychedelics for pain and potentially in end-of-life conditions like cancer and dementia, looking for the sort of anxiety and stress that comes with those conditions. What do we know about what these psychedelic drugs are doing to your brain and then how would you use that in these various different conditions that you've said that they're being used in? So it looks like that psychedelics are rewiring our neuronal connections and they're doing it quite rapidly and they're just essentially inducing plasticity in the neurons. So if you think of the neurons in your brain as a sort of closely packed trees and they're flourishing and growing in the lush gardens of your prefrontal cortex and that's where you organize thoughts and actions. The sort of branches, the tangled branches of these trees are things called dendrites uh, which are part of the neurons and if you have a healthy brain you've got a rich canopy there with branches that are connecting to each other and um, with strong connections and A less healthy brain is where you have sort of withered branches and you have losses of connectivity and less communication between the cortex and areas that are associated with motivation and reward. And just to be clear here, in trying to understand the brain, it's these connections that are important, aren't they? Let me just explain in mice. So in mice, if you give psilocybin to mice, the connections between the neurons in their brains become more numerous and stronger. And it sort of suggests that, you know, connectivity has improved. Now, not all the changes last, but when you do this to mice, a month later, you can see that there are still some changes in these connections. And that seems to kind of relate to their stress-related behavior. So we do know that some real activity being triggered here. There's a host of receptors that are being triggered by psychedelics. Uh, But fundamentally, it seems to be this neuronal plasticity that is helping the brain to sort of overcome some of these mental health conditions. Okay, so plasticity is increased, the number of connections grows. So you get these stronger branches, essentially, uh, between the neurons, as you say. Uh, What else could psychedelic drugs be doing in the brain that account for the effects? Well, I mean, this is the interesting thing, is that they're also disrupting a lot of network activity in the brain. And by this, I mean, it's the way in which different areas of the brain talk to each other. And that's where you kind of get this hallucinogenic effect. And one area of the brain doesn't normally communicate with another, but it does with the brain under these psychedelics. And it's this trippy bit of the experience on top of the plasticity-inducing bit, which forms part of the hallucinogenic experience. There's a lot of debate about whether you need this trippy bit as well. Okay, thanks, Natasha. Now, to explore some of this research in a bit more detail, our correspondent Ainsley Johnston visited one of Britain's most high-profile psilocybin research facilities. The next station is Denmark Hill. Change here for National Rail Services. On a busy street in South London stands the Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital. It's one of Britain's most important mental health institutions and is where a lot of psychedelic research is carried out in partnership with King's College London. The brains behind the research are just down the road at the Institute for Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience. 
Hidden away at the end of a long, unassuming corridor is Alan Young's office. He's a professor and the head of the School of Academic Psychiatry. Hi, Alan. Hello. 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 Uh, nice to meet you. Alan Young and his team are leading some cutting-edge research that could contribute to a paradigm shift in how depression is treated. If we think about the standard treatment of depression with medication or psychotherapy, you get regular treatment over a prolonged period of time. What's really very different about this paradigm is that people get a one-off treatment session and then that may have benefits that continue for a prolonged period of time. So that is actually a very, very different model. The department at King's, which is collaborating with Compass Pathways, a mental health pharmaceutical company, is investigating the impact of psychedelics on a wide range of mental health conditions. There's a plethora of potential different psychedelics, all of which share the same common mechanisms. And there's also a large number of psychiatric and neuropsychiatric conditions which may benefit from it. One of the most advanced studies, with over 230 patients, uses psilocybin, the psychoactive compound found in magic mushrooms, as a treatment for a severe form of depression. The treatment-resistant depression trial involves administration of psilocybin in a safe, protected environment where people have psychological support throughout the duration of the treatment. And that means that they may need the psychological support for up to 12 hours. One of the people delivering that support is Nadav Liam Maudlin. So on the morning of the psilocybin session, uh, the patient, after giving consent, will receive the psilocybin and will invite the, the participant to recline and to maybe revisit their intentions or if they have any questions to ask. Really, we do everything we can for the patient to feel that they're in a very psychologically safe environment. So in modern clinical research setting, we do it at King's College Hospital, for example. There's a focus on transforming medical settings that often might feel a bit cold into warm and welcoming, friendly and tender environments. Um, so you obviously have like maybe some soft lighting, there's, there's a carpet, and the actual psilocybin session, uh, the participant is invited to lay down on a bed and there's eye shades and the soft, gentle music that is curated in order to really support the unfolding experience of psilocybin. It's in this setting that patients are given Compass's formulation of psilocybin, called COMP360, in the form of a pill. There's common effects of psilocybin, which might include perceptual distortions or unusual physical experiences, and, and we normalize that. But more than that, we ask participants to make use of any experiences like this um, in order to promote healing or increase confidence or discover new parts of themselves to feel more connected to feelings and they might, might be avoiding. After 15 minutes or so, we may invite the participant to make use of the eye shades and make use of the earphones and, in a way, what we call go inside or start exploring their own internal experiences to maybe notice the onset of the effects of psilocybin and from that point on to really continue, be curious and open to 
practice going towards experiences, expressing emotions, noticing sensations in the body, recalling thoughts. And do the patients normally hallucinate after they've taken the drug? Well, I think it's really interesting, you know, we don't really use the word hallucinate so much with patients. I think it's more about the psilocybin experience or psychedelic experience is this multifaceted. So you might have visual distortions, you might have audio distortions, but you must also have um, feelings in the body, or you might have stronger emotions, or you might have memories that come up. So it's not so much an hallucination, it's more could be described by some people as a kind of a waking dream. Participants in the study were given either 10 or 25 milligram doses of the psilocybin drug, which somewhat differs from psilocybin taken recreationally as magic mushrooms. If you take recreational drugs, in my view, it's a bit like drinking water out of a puddle on the street because you just don't know what's in there, as opposed to medicinal grade, which is like drinking water out of the tap, or even better, water out of a bottle of sparkling mineral water. And in terms of the outcomes of the trial, can you talk a little bit about how people with depression have reacted to your psilocybin study? We know quite a lot about what to expect for treatment uh, outcomes in this population. So this, on average, would have about a 15% benefit, which means about 15% of people would go into remission. So that's really the benchmark. And we got a far higher rate of people benefiting from the psilocybin treatment. And as I say, it's a one-off treatment. And we found over a third of people actually went into remission which is really, you know, having worked in this field for a considerable period of time, uh, a very robust result. So I think a lot of people will understand that 30% is, is a really great result when you're talking about people who are resistant to other forms of treatment. One thing that we want to ask about is when the results were announced, Compass Pathways share price fell mm. after the results. Do you find that there's maybe too much hype in the field surrounding the effects? Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very interesting point because I think there's a belief from lots of people that it's going to be a magic cure and a one-off treatment will cure everyone of everything all the time. Uh, and that's simply not really tenable. So I think inflated expectations and unrealistic expectations are at play here. Uh, there's also, must be said, a similar downplaying of the benefits of current standard treatments, which although they don't work for everyone, and there's a large minority of people that they don't work for, are uh, efficacious and acceptable treatments for the majority of people. So, you know, you've got to put it into context, really. Hearing positive outcomes from patients is encouraging for therapists like Liam. When this treatment works for people with depression or PTSD or anorexia, what we can observe is that there's, there's kind of this immediate effect which kind of opens a window in which more change can take place. And one of the narratives that I hear often from patients that respond to treatment is that it's kind of this opening of an internal space where they can maybe look at their depression in a new way or experience positive emotions or a bit more self-compassion, but then may lead to you know, more durable outcomes. The Treatment-Resistant Depression Trial is the largest psilocybin study to date. 
That's important, because for a long time, great claims were made about the drug, without much robust clinical evidence. Far larger trials are still needed, though. There's a huge unmet need with depression. You know, we have something like over 200 million people in the world with depression. That's increased because of COVID. So some new treatment that energises the field, I think, is very good, as well as providing extra efficacy. I think the other thing to say about psychedelics is there's been a lot of focus on treatment-resistant depression, but there's a number of other disorders where we feel it may be beneficial. So I don't think we know where we're going to end up with psilocybin. We may end up with there being multiple conditions, and at the moment we're thinking about treatment-resistant depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. We're also thinking about some of the severe eating disorders, which may actually be the first candidates for it being examined. There may also potentially be some conditions where it doesn't help at all or potentially even could make things worse. So there needs to be lots of clinical research. But I'm very optimistic. Do you have any idea of what sort of timescale we'll be looking at until we know the answers as to whether psychedelics are useful for this disorder or that disorder? Well, I mean, I'm afraid science is something that is never certain. I think it probably will have a role in treatment-resistant depression and we'll probably have more clarity about that within the next couple of years. The future is going to be very interesting. We may see the care of depression being very different in, you know, potentially as little as five or ten years' time. But psychedelics aren't only being tested to help with mental health conditions. King's College London and Compass Pathways are also using psilocybin to gain a better understanding of a developmental disorder, autism. I'm Tobias Whelan. I'm a PhD student at King's College London and I'm a research scientist at Compass Pathways. And we're here at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience. I'm conducting the first study of psilocybin in autistic adults. So can you tell me a little bit more about the study? What, what happens? So it's 70 people, 70 healthy adults, 40 of which are autistic and 30 non-autistic controls. And they'll join us for three visits. So on each of these three visits, they'll either receive placebo or two single low doses of psilocybin. They'll then have an MRI scan and then they'll join us for EEG and then there'll be a cognitive battery as well. And so what this does is it's a really comprehensive protocol that looks across the organisational structure of the brain. So, for example, in MRI, we're looking at how these big networks in the brain interact and how they change and how activating the serotonin system changes those networks in the autistic participants and also in comparison to non-autistic controls, which gives us a really good insight into how psilocybin potentially impacts the, the autistic brain. Tobias and his colleagues will use the same formulation of psilocybin as the depression study, albeit at a much lower dose. At the slightly higher of the low doses, people may experience slight perceptual changes or feel different in themselves, feel like they've taken something. But we're not expecting full psychedelic experiences in, in our study specifically. A major brain chemical system that regulates a lot of brain activity output is serotonin. That's Gronya McAlonen. She's a professor of translational neuroscience at King's College London and a clinician in the National Autism and ADHD Service for Adults at the Maudsley Hospital. She's also the study's lead investigator. 
And we know that psilocybin targets the serotonin system. And in particular, a number of receptors which we suspect are altered in an autism spectrum condition. And indeed, there's a lot of evidence that serotonin in and of itself may be altered in an autism spectrum condition. But actually, we don't know an awful lot about what happens in the living human brain whenever the serotonin system is altered. And a lot of our evidence is actually based on correlational evidence. The only real way we can say if a regulator like serotonin, for example, does influence or control a mechanism in brain is to change it and then see if we can shift that mechanism. So what we're trying to do is have direct experimental evidence that shifting serotonin shifts a mechanism of importance in the autistic and indeed non-autistic brain. It's worth bearing in mind that this study isn't a clinical trial. Those will come later, when psilocybin is better understood. But the hope is that one day the drug could be used as a therapy. If indeed we find that psilocybin in some individuals does help alter a mechanism of importance such as sensory processing in a way that someone with an autistic condition may want to make use of in a clinical trial, then that gives that person the opportunity or a little bit more choice than they have at present to have that intervention. The other way the study can work is that actually more in general terms, we hope to get the field to think more about direct experimental medicine in humans, which is preclinical trial stage. So truly preclinical studies that happen in humans. So that rather than going from bench to bedside, we go from the bench into the living human brain, understand what particular neurochemicals are doing in the human brain and then use that to inform how we might have more targeted and useful interventions in future across a range of neuropsychiatric conditions. And do you think that's something that's been missing from the research before, this sort of middle step of trying to understand what a drug is actually doing in the brain? Absolutely. People have gone from these correlational studies I mentioned before to saying, let's look in animals to see if a similar sort of mechanism gets changed when I add a drug or, or manipulate something. And then they go straight into clinical trials in humans without that intermediary step. And that may well be why essentially clinical trials in autism have failed up until now. And across psychiatry, there haven't been any real advances in the interventions available for a whole range of um, psychiatric conditions. And autism isn't a mental health condition, but autism spectrum conditions are associated with mental health conditions. And we'd like to break that association, actually, and have people who have an autism spectrum condition not necessarily go on to have also a mental health problem, which unfortunately is really common at the moment. I'm not a psychedelic researcher. I work on human brain and I see psilocybin as a really useful tool and it may eventually turn into something that we could offer as an intervention for people who want to look at that, for example, who have an autism spectrum condition. But the important thing for me would be to think individually. And one of the ways we think about autism spectrum conditions is that Every individual is very different and neurochemically they will be very different. At the moment, all that happens is we pick 
a one-size-fits-all approach for people. It doesn't work in everyone, often maybe has side effects, and that's just not good enough, I think. That was our reporter, Ainsley Johnston, who now joins me and Natasha. Uh, Ainsley, thanks for coming along. Thanks, Alex. Pleasure to be here. Ainsley, something that listeners won't know about you, and which is going to be very useful for our show today, is that you're actually a real neuroscientist. Um, How useful do you think psychedelics could be in understanding things like autism better? One of the issues with autism is it's a really vague collection of different issues that people have. And actually, if you look at the brain of someone who has autism and the brain of someone who doesn't, there's not really a whole lot of big structural differences that you can see. But there are definitely differences in how their brains maybe process information. And one of the things that people think is important is the serotonin system, which is a a neurotransmitter. Sometimes people call it 5-HT, and it's involved in mood and sleep, but also different aspects of cognition. And this serotonin system is activated by psilocybin. And the idea is that with that, we might be able to understand more of the mechanisms that are causing autism, but also to see uh, whether there are any differences between different people who have autism, because it's a very varied spectrum of condition. So it's an interesting way of examining the condition from multiple angles in a way that perhaps wasn't possible before. Now, Natasha, in Ainsley's reporting, Professor McAlonin said that neurodiverse people are more likely to develop mental health conditions. So understanding how psychedelics work in people with autism does have a lot of potential. But let's take a step back for a minute to talk about the studies using psilocybin as a therapy for things like treatment-resistant depression. How promising are the results from King's College and Compass Pathways? Well, they're interesting and they're quite promising. But I mean, I'd note a couple of things. One is that only actually one in four had a sustained remission. So that reduced the response rate a bit more. And there was another problem that came up, which was that essentially there was a sort of a suicidality signal. So what they were seeing was that there were some suicidal behavior symptoms in the 25 milligram group. So in terms of the suicidality, it is something that you do see in these sorts of trials, not psychedelics, but of treatment-resistant depression and um, of drugs like that. It's also possible that it's a result of a failure to work the therapy. In other words, people have pinned their hope so highly on treatment that when actually it doesn't work for them, they feel really quite bad and potentially worse than before. Ainsley, did you get a sense of how treatments would be rolled out if they were shown to be effective and approved by regulators? Again, that's one of the things that still needs to be figured out. Also, at the moment, all the research at at King's using psilocybin, uh, the psilocybin is being given alongside psychotherapy, like what we just heard in in the piece there, uh, like Liam is doing. The reasons for that are that the psilocybin therapy can have quite a lot of side effects and it's important that they're close to the hospital and so they have a crash team just in case anything terrible was to go wrong. But I think also one of the roles of the therapist was really to sort of talk people through their emotions that they're experiencing, which can be pretty extreme when they're taking the drug, and to make them feel safe and comfortable. And and then, of course, after the experience, you know, the role of the therapist is to sort of give therapy, like what they call it integration therapy, and it's more like traditional psychotherapy. 
But the whole experience is very intensive in terms of supervision by staff and uh, trained psychotherapists. And that's one of the things that is ultimately going to make it hard to access for people because it's going to be expensive and health systems are not going to want to pay for it. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of companies are looking at how to create sort of second generation drugs, which have shorter trips. They may last only a couple of hours. You could have it in your lunchtime, for example, or there's no trip at all. Um, In other words, they take out the hallucinogenic effect. Trips in your lunchtime, that's something that we definitely have to follow up in a moment. But before we do, since I've got you both here, I wanted to ask what else you've been enjoying recently, The Economist. Now, Natasha, you've written half the paper this week, so uh, I'm not going to expect you to have read much more than you were in TQ. But tell me, we're talking about psychedelics here, but what else is in the TQ? Well, there's lots of exciting stuff in there about uh, precision neuroscience, about efforts to develop a drug for Alzheimer's, why they failed. And one of my favourite bits of the TQ is I did an interview with a chap called Phil O'Keefe, who's an Australian, and he's the second person in the world who's had a brain-computer interface inserted into his brain. And here it monitors his activity and his cortex, and then he can use that to control a computer, which is very helpful because he has ALS, which is a degenerative condition. Well, that sounds fascinating. Ainsley, uh, what about you? What else have you been reading in the paper this week? Obviously, apart from the entire uh, neuroscience technology quarterly. So I'm actually a member of the data team, and I particularly enjoyed the data story this week in graphic detail, which was about Amber in Myanmar and the illegal trade of it. It's a fascinating ethical question, actually, isn't it? Because um, there's amber being sold from Myanmar to China and scientists are using that there to then publish papers and make discoveries. But then obviously the the funds from that are being used to uh, fund quite dodgy practices in Myanmar. So, you know, it's, it's a question for scientists, you know, should you be doing this work, basically? It's really interesting. Now, for listeners who want to delve into those articles and much more, uh, be sure to subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Ainsley, thank you so much for joining us. Now, Natasha and I will be back in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today on Babbage, we're exploring how psychedelic drugs could one day be useful in understanding and even treating a number of conditions that affect the brain. Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor, is with me. Natasha, you just briefly mentioned the fascinating possibility that psychedelics might be able to remove the hallucinogenic experiences from psychedelic drugs. But before we dive into that, though, can you describe for us what the highs of a psychedelic drug feel like, for those who don't know? 
everything seems very intense. Light seems very intense. Smells seem very intense. And, you know, say you were tripping and you were having a cup of coffee, you know, might just not smell just the coffee. You might smell a whole range of notes within it, you know. And so tripping can really sort of change the way you experience the world. It's kind of hard to explain. You can see things like images which are static may move, they may appear to move, a, a painting or something like that may look like a, um, a little film. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's quite an experience. These are all the reasons why people might use psychedelics recreationally. It's, it's enjoyable for them. Uh, but these experiences aren't necessarily safe for everybody, are they? No, there are warnings against giving psychedelics to people with a history or family history of psychosis. Um, you can get psychotic episodes triggered. I mean, psychedelics, broadly speaking, are sort of biologically at a sort of body level. They're, they're quite safe compounds. There are a few that there may be some cardiotoxicity there, but obviously that's all going to be factored in to the trials. But you limit these adverse events essentially by giving them in very tightly controlled settings. And you, of course, exclude patients who may be likely to have a bad reaction. Okay, so how can researchers start to figure out the importance of these hallucinogenic effects on psychedelic therapies? Well, this is a really interesting and vigorous debate. And um, there's a camp that believes that the sort of hallucinogenic effects are, are absolutely necessary. They reveal parts of your psyche that other compounds cannot reach. But other people are saying that actually, maybe they're not necessary. Maybe the just neuroplastic effects of psychedelics are enough. And you spoke to one of those researchers, didn't you, who's trying to engineer out the hallucinogenic effects of psychedelic drugs? Yeah, that's right. I spoke to David Olson. He's a chemist and neuroscientist at the University of California, Davis. And he's also the chief innovation officer at Delix Therapeutics, a biotechnology company. We're trying to engineer psychedelics to be a little safer and more scalable. And one of the ways that we can do that is by removing the hallucinogenic component of the drug. And what we're really trying to do is to create medicines that can help the largest number of patients possible. Now, I, I fully believe that first-generation hallucinogenic uh, psychedelics are going to help some patients. But what you have to remember is that in order to be administered safely, they have to be given in the clinic under the supervision of a healthcare professional. And that inherently limits the scalability of the treatment. And so what we were really hoping for is to produce a medicine that is so safe that you could simply take it home and put it in your medicine cabinet. And this is really important when you consider the fact that one in five people will suffer from a neuropsychiatric disease at some point in their lifetime. That's a billion people worldwide. And we're really hoping to be able to bring medicines to that large number of patients. So... What makes you so sure that it isn't necessary to have hallucinations in order to get this neuroplasticity and this therapeutic effect that you're talking about? Well, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you can decouple the hallucinogenic effects of the drugs from their effects on neuroplasticity. But I'll just give you a few examples. First, there is a, a compound in the clinic right now that lacks hallucinogenic effects, but has a very, very potent psychoplastogen, and that's MDMA, and it's being used for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. MDMA does not produce the same types of mystical type experiences that something like psilocybin or LSD does. 
In addition to that, there's some really interesting work on ketamine. Uh, Ketamine is a, a dissociative anesthetic, but there's at least three reports that I know of where ketamine was given to people under anesthesia. And so they wake up and they have no memory of the dissociative experience, but they still have improved mood. And something that I think is really important to remember is that correlation does not imply causation. And oftentimes you'll hear that the therapeutic effects of the drugs correlate with their subjective effects. But, you know, that could be for a variety of reasons. So how do you see these psychoplastogens work in practice? So we're developing them to be orally bioavailable take-home medicines. So uh, you would go to a doctor, receive a diagnosis. They would then prescribe the medicine. You could then go to your local pharmacy, pick them up and bring them home with you and take them as uh, directed by the doctor. And how often are people going to take these drugs and do they need to have therapy at the same time? That's an open question right now that will only be determined after a very rigorous in-clinic evaluation. But we're not anticipating that these medicines are going to be like traditional antidepressants. They're not going to require daily administration. Now, whether or not patients will need to take them once a week, once a month, once a year, you know, that's to be determined and will probably depend on the severity of the illness and what indication they're used for. Now, Natasha, you spend a lot of your time thinking about drug regulation. I know this for a fact. Um, Do you think that Delix will be able to create and get a cabinet psychedelic, uh, as it's called, approved? Well, look, this is a preclinical company, and that means they haven't started trials in humans. So we don't know. But I think the idea is sufficiently valuable that it really is worth talking about and thinking about. Now, of course, all of this is very early stage. It's all basic research in some respects. And we're going to hopefully know the answers to a lot of the questions in the coming years or even decades. What do you think are the next steps for companies like Delix or Compass who are developing these psychedelic-based therapeutics? So for Compass and also a nonprofit group called MAPS, which is doing the MDMA studies, they're approaching regulators with drugs that they hope to get approval for. And should either of those therapies get approval, that will be like a really big step for the field. It will encourage lots of investment. And companies like Delix, for example, which are sort of coming from much farther behind, could benefit from interest and investment in improvements to these early therapies in drugs that could do better and could be used more widely. To sort of zoom out from all of this, what do you make of the psychedelic revolution in medicine? Is this something that we should all be turning our heads towards and being uh, being interested in? Do you think it's, uh, you know, to, to use a cliche, is it a game changer? I think it could be, but I think the number of patients who are going to benefit from it in the next five years are actually going to be far smaller than people imagine. And I think that the sort of hype cycle has been a little bit unhelpful, actually. And it's raised expectations for these drugs far beyond where they're likely to deliver, I would say, In the general public, there's a sort of perception that they could be a sort of cure-all. And they absolutely are not going to be a cure-all. 
they're going to do well for certain conditions, but it's not going to help everyone. And I just think you need to have a little bit more patience with these category of medicine. And if you lower your expectations a bit, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Now, we started this whole show with a bit of history that that, that basically these drugs have been around for many decades and mainly they've been illegal because people have used them for uh, recreational uses and it's been illegal to actually do research on them. And and there's now this swell of interest in what they can do for various neurological conditions. Do you think that the stigma that's attached to these drugs has been overcome or starting to be overcome? I think it's been overcome in some important ways. I don't think it has been completely. There are still many places where you you simply couldn't do this research. And so there's a sort of coalition of the willing, if you like, in terms of places that will allow it. I think once you get drugs that are approved with a stringent regulator, like the Food and Drug Administration, I think that will really serve to kind of try to overcome these real hurdles that remain. Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Alok. Which drug were you on during this show? <laughs> Which drug? The, the drug of pure excitement at your presence, Alok. <laughs> <laughs> That's also technically a psychedelic. <laughs> Our thanks also to Alan Young, Nadav Liam Modlin, Tobias Whelan, Gronya Makalonen, David Olson, and the economists Ainsley Johnston. And thank you for listening to Babbage. If you want to hear more about the use of ketamine to treat depression, scroll back to our episode from June or head to economist.com slash psychedelics dash pod. There's also a handy link in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with support from Leonie Tanza. Mixing and sound design is by Nico Rofast. And the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Cha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.